0: Welcome to our second service on this good Sunday morning. If you have your Bible, Colossians chapter 3 is where you would need to turn, page 834 in the church Bibles, if that would be a help to you. If you're new to West Cohasset, my name is Joe Franzone, and it's my privilege to serve here, and um, it's a privilege to have you here this morning. We're going to begin reading in verse 18, and while you're turning there, just let me commend to you this this evening's Prayer su- service, it's our duty to pray, to pray publicly, to gather together. As we saw in the video, it's our privilege and, and um, responsibility. So, as you consider things this evening for yourself, um, you would, I would ask you to consider the, the, the wisdom of setting, set, aside, set aside some time for yourself in this context. Verse 18 let hear the word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you, and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism, masters, Provide for your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. If you would, let's bow together. Just a brief moment of silence, and then to our Father in heaven to tell him our need. Gracious God, gracious Father, we thank you that it is to your word that we now turn. Therefore, it is to the authority of you, the living God, we now look. For Father, we are mere mortals. We don't know everything. We now see through a glass dimly. One day, everything will be clear and we will be perfect. But this morning, we ask for as much clarity as you would give in order that we may speak carefully, honestly and wisely, and that we may be able to listen carefully, honestly, and humbly. Therefore, Father, please enable us to put into practice for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ these principles given to us from your word in love. So we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would be our teacher, and we ask these much-needed things in the name of the crucified, risen, ascended, and exalted King. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, our text this morning, you can see there if your Bible is open and if you have a worship folder, is verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Now, it should come to us as no real surprise that from the very beginning of this letter, the apostle has been putting the person and the rule and the work of Christ first in everything. In chapter 1 and 2, we learn that all of created order in our salvation and in his preaching, Jesus Christ is first. Jesus Christ is all wisdom. Jesus Christ is all knowledge. He is first. He is first because he's first. First over creation, first in salvation, first in sanctification, and so on. So that because Jesus Christ is first, on our best day and on our worst day, Jesus Christ is to be looked to first. First. On our worst day, when sin is abounding, what are our gospel privileges? Our gospel privileges are to exalt in the free grace of God given only in Jesus, where grace can always and will always abound. We can't, un, un, uh, we can't outmatch, if you would, grace. On our best day, when things are going splendidly, who is the source of all our well-being and all goodness? Jesus Christ alone is the source of our well-being and goodness as amazing grace, a a grace that makes men holy, and common grace, a grace that fills men's bellies, is known as a grace that only Jesus Christ can give. And that was chapters 1 and 2. And chapter 3, Paul then goes on to say how the rule of Christ is to have authority, and here is where our interest lies this morning, has authority over all human relationships, For the Christian on this earth. So, for example, how the Christian ought to behave in their relationship with Jesus is given in chapter 3. How how the Christian ought to behave in their public worship of Jesus Christ, verses 9 through 16, as we see all those each other in one another's statements. And last week, how one then ought to worship Jesus Christ. Verse 16b, so that in every human relationship, in every human, verse 17, word or deed, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ has, is to have, the supremacy. Therefore, Knowing how rich the love of Jesus is and displayed chiefly in the wonder of a self-giving, life-altering love on the cross, one can imagine and one should be able to experience how wonderful the rule of Christ is to be in the ordering of our lives. And Paul, in this, is not assuming perfection in the sense that he's he's aiming for a life void of sin. Not in this body. he has made it clear that sin that has been dethroned in the Christian life, has not been removed from the Christian life. So, Paul is clear that that's a lifelong battle with indwelling sin is to be expected so that we might find again and again a number of occasions to glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, he is revealing and putting forth the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ in everything. And that supremacy And that sufficiency is the only basis for the Christian status and standing with God, and with men, and with women, and every earthbound human relationship, including wives and husbands, is to be molded then after the pattern of the things in heaven, where the rule of Christ, if you would, the ascended Christ, is everything and always happening. You see, And this is where our minds need to go this morning. If there is a constant dissatisfaction for the Christian, if in the balance of our Christian life, namely a Christian marriage, there's constant dissatisfaction, you can almost always trace it back to the constant disobedience and the constant devaluing of Christ and his gospel in the, if you would, unfolding of a Christian's life and marriage. In other words, you have a real poor grasp of what was won for you at Calvary. Now it could also be said that some of you that walk into that context and are very satisfied but either not in Christ or not walking with Christ, you could say something on the order of, well maybe you're just in the midstream of the plan of the evil one to hurt you and so therefore you're right in the middle of him feeding you large portions of pleasures and things of that nature only to, if you would, fatten you up for the day of slaughter. However, verse 17, in light of who Christ is and what Christ has done, not only is that good theology, but it is equally good philosophy. Whatever you do, in word or deed, everything, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, do everything so that Jesus Christ, if you would, could look down in heaven and look into our hearts and say, Amen, so be it, to what we are deciding and how we are living and the precepts and patterns of our lives. And that is the test. That is the test. As we give God the Father thanks through Jesus Christ. So as we look and read. Paul's not finished. It's. it's you take it like this. He's not finished telling us what to do. Right? He's not finished. So he goes from Christian in the church. Christian in the local church. And now he moves from the very very difficult topic. Of the Christian marriage. And the Christian family. And namely this morning. The very difficult topic of the Christian wife. Now. None of us here this morning in the know. Those of us who read our Bibles with one hand and the newspapers in the other know or should be surprised how what the Bible says about a gospel-centered wife, especially here in verse 18, is constantly smeared, it's mocked, and rejected in our current cultural climate. It's often said to be kind of low-brained bondage for women, out of touch with the realities of today. Now, that should come as no surprise to us. That's essentially low-hanging fruit. We understand that if, if we pay attention to culture. However, not only is this true in the culture, it is equally true in the church as we suffer within the wider church itself as a result of the either misrepresentation or the alteration of the biblical instructions for wives, husbands, family, and children. We have said it here now on a number of occasions, we make no apology to say it again, that when Paul speaks to the Colossians, and he speaks of holy living, he speaks of sanctified living, how Jesus Christ would live in all the given contexts that we have, when he does that, and namely when he speaks of marriage and wives this morning, he does not send us to a technique However, he does send us to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, if Paul was going to write a book about marriage, which so many do these days, we could say, well, actually, he already has wrote a book and it's Colossians and Ephesians and so on. And we need to pay attention to this Christ-centered principle because I'm going to suggest to you that much of what is given to us now as essential, useful, and important in marital and family living, without there being any incentive of wrong in what they're doing, there remains a large possibility, I'm going to suggest, that the information is distorted in a way it's explained and distorted in a way that it's received. Now, I haven't found out yet, but it would come to me as no shock whatsoever that if any other aspect of Christian living has been addressed as frequently in the past 35 years in books from these United States, more than the Christian marriage and the Christian family. And as you think about those things, given all the attention that has been paid to this area, one doesn't have to wonder how good or how bad things are. It is to our shame, statistically, we do not have much distinction at all in the realm of fidelity in the realm of adultery, or even domestic harmony. Premarital sex, statistically, might as well, though it should not be, it might as well be a universal and inevitable fact of life. So, if you're going to be honest, as I am, and as you think about these things, I ask myself why the Bible and why Jesus say so little about marriage and family directly, while at the same time, in the last 35 years, men and women are willing to say and write and preach so much about how to do marriage and how to do family specifically. They give us details that even our Lord did not give. So as I was thinking about these things and kind of thinking these things through, and that's my responsibility in large measure, right, to think things through here, my observation essentially came down to this, and it's been moving in my round mind, excuse me, Around in my mind for a number of years. It's probably not a surprise to some of you. But I, I want you to think with me just for a minute. When the gospel is given, when we tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ, it is so easy to say it in such a way that appeals to their felt needs at first. And so we don't question their felt needs and we don't question why they are there. And at the same time, we pay very little attention to the fact of God's wrath because of sin and the wonder and the amazement of God's mercy given in Jesus Christ. And so that when we place man in his felt needs, you know, my life is crummy, empty, scary, can you fix it? Before God in his glory, the Son of God loves you in all your moral filth and he gave himself up for you so that God's wrath would be removed and you could now live a new life. Can you believe it? So when we place man and his felt need before God in his glory, at that point we twist and distort the gospel. In the same way when we come to worship, public worship. It's all too easy to begin with man and his need before God in his glory. So we begin with man asking, what would you like in public worship rather than what has God said about how he is to be approached in public worship? And so, when we begin with us, rather than God, we begin at the wrong place, and frankly, we begin with the wrong person. And we twist in some measure what it means to worship God, and that dishonors God, and it actually hurts us. Therefore, when we come to the topic of Christian marriage, namely the role of a Christian wife or a Christian husband, it's caused me to consider whether our trouble in the Christian church is because we start in the wrong place. And frankly, we start with the wrong person. That in spite of the fact that we have before us so many sources and resources of how to set things right in our marriage over these last 35 years, much of the material I'm going to suggest is extremely man-centered, extremely woman-centered, me first or you first, but not Christ first. So they come with us and they'll come along. You can do this. And if you do this, you'll, you will immediately have some benefit and you'll feel better and she'll feel better and you'll feel better about yourself and things will be better in your home. She needs this and he needs that and do that, all of which are more than likely true. And they will give certainly some temporal benefit. But, and you'll have to give me this, all of those encouragements may be equally found in self-help books and other religions, but both have no allegiance to the risen Jesus Christ. And, and even if all our felt needs as humans were met, even if everything was going exactly the way that we would like us, it, what does the Bible teach us? What does it teach us in Ecclesiastes, and what do the Gospels teach us? It teaches us that we can have the world increasingly by the tail, seemingly, Having things go the way we would like and still be miserable, still be unhappy, still be dissatisfied, still be ungrateful, and saying along with King Solomon, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, or hearing the words of our Lord, you fool, you fool, tonight your life will be taken from you. And why is this so? Well, it's so because, one, our hearts are restless, until we find our rest only in Christ and because we have forgotten or ignored the first one, which is Jesus Christ. First question of the shorter, shorter catechism, right? What is the chief end of man? So we could say, like, what is the chief end of a woman? What is the chief end of a husband? What is the chief end of children, of a marriage, of a family, of a household? Why are we here, right? The chief end of all these things, of a, of a wife, of a husband, of a marriage, of a family, and so on. The chief end of all these things is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, who says that? Well, the Bible says that. Colossians 3.17, which you can see there if your Bible's open. And 1 Corinthians 10.31. And I'm going to smash them together and read them. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do... Do it all for the glory of God in the name of Christ. So, wives, to live within the framework of the text there in verse 18, to live in your union with Christ, I'm going to suggest to you is ultimately about the gospel. Your role and how you should fulfill it is ultimately about the gospel. Because for a Christian wife to comply with verse 18, not perfectly, you understand. okay. But in such a way in which her life is is bent towards that principle, in part because her worship is bent towards her Lord, Jesus Christ. For a wife to say Jesus is Lord, Jesus Christ is Lord, but, but will not obey Jesus Christ as Lord, then she fails to put into practice at the most basic of levels what it means to follow him as Lord. And the same is true for husbands, and the same is true for children. So what we're going to do in the remainder of our time together, I'm going to use four words to guide us. They're in the back of your worship folder. So it's going to work through this text and work through this principle of submission for the wife as is fitting in the Lord. So the first word, as you can see there, is divinity. Divinity. For the Christian wife to understand this principle of submission, they have to understand this is a divine pattern that even orders the Godhead. And to understand divinity is to understand that submission in the New Testament has nothing to do with value and has nothing to do with the worth of a person because it has everything to do with the role of a person given to them by God. Because I know and I suspect you know that to the modern ear, the word submission is not easily liked and nor is it easily embraced. In Ephesians 5.21, which comes before Ephesians 5.22, which so many Christian ladies have had pounded into their heads... 521 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, for Jesus' sake, the principle of mutual submission is not the duty of some, but the responsibility of all. So that in all Christian relationships, including husbands and wife and children and parents, in in varying degrees, mutual submission is to take place. And the reason why this is so, which means the reason why no Christian husband and no Christian parent are to be tyrannical dictators, is because of the equality of male and female described for us in creation and given to us in Christ. Described in creation from Genesis 1, 27. Let's listen to God's word. So God created, Hadam is is the Hebrew word. God created humanity. He created mankind. He created men and women, boys and girls, in his own image. Male and female, he created them. So equality right from the start in creation. And then equality given and and frankly one for men and women in Christ. This is Galatians 3.28. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And so, men and women are thus absolutely equal before God, but not identical in their God-given roles, right? Equal before God, yes, but not identical in their God-given roles that are to order marriages and family. So, so frankly, a man is better than a woman at being a man, and a woman is better than a man at being a woman. It follows then that this divine principle in creation and in Christ is to become the fundamental rule of a Christian's wife, obedience to her Lord, and then to her husband. And gentlemen, let's make sure we remember who is who. So for a wife to submit to her husband as fitting in the Lord, she's essentially reflecting the wonder of the Trinity. So you have the son who submits to the father. The son, the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to the father, God Almighty. And they are co-equal, son and father, co-equal in glory, co-equal in authority, co-equal in power. And there's harmony there. Therefore, the son loses none of his value when he submits to the father. Point of fact, when the son makes the ultimate submission of going to the cross for our sins, untold numbers of people are saved because of Calvary's blood. But the point here is, and this takes us to our second word, royalty, If that is how submission unfolds in the beauty and the power of the divine trinity, and it is right, it is to be equally true in the Christian marriage where it is needed. So as as a woman submits to her husband, she's modeling Christ's submission to God. That, That is a lovely picture there. So again, does that remove any of the infinite worth of the Lord Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. Does it remove any of the worth of a woman when she submits? Absolutely not. So husbands... If we go into a marriage thinking that we are King George and she is at our beck and call, at best, we're acting like a buffoon. And at worst, we are abusing a precious union that is to be a reflection of the Godhead. Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 3. I am my lovers and my lover is mine. And that's said from the female voice. So Christ is royalty and frankly, Christian wives, you are royalty. So again, it is, it is a matter of function. It is not a matter of value. And husbands, if we, if we try to use our God-given rights in an authoritative fashion that misuses that divine model, then we ought to be careful. We ought to be careful because dads are always really good to their daughters. So in submitting to her husband and the Lord, the woman doesn't lose any speck of worth, no speck of value, she loses none of her splendor, and she doesn't even lose her authority, right? So she doesn't have to ask our permission for everything she does, does she? And she should have an ever-increasing say in how things ought to be in the home, shouldn't she? So that in the everyday matters of life, of a Monday and a Tuesday and on and on, piety, godliness, works itself specifically for wives here, but generally for all of us. Piety works itself out in godliness, which means we take our minds and our judgments and our will, and we place it under the mind and the judgment and the will of God. And we bring the totality of the scriptures upon our conduct. Therefore, for a Christian wife to be a Christian wife, it involves bringing your mind, your judgments, and your will under the mind and the will and judgment of God, just like Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that the context bears this out in verse 18, because verse 18 does not exist in isolation, okay? No matter how terrific the the people are, no one has a right to rip this verse out of its context and then say anything you like. You know, let me tell you a few stories about my marriage. Okay, that's not how it works. The, the context here in verse 18 is that which everything that has preceded verse 18. And what Paul is doing is essentially been telling the Colossian Christians they have a dual citizenship. They were in Colossae with all the stuff that matters there, but they were also by God's grace in Christ. And that's true of every Christian, right? We're in Cohasset this morning, But if we are believers, we are in Christ. So Paul writes into two places, and he comes up, if you would, with two conditions. So in this context, there's a general condition. The social system of Paul's day was that a woman had absolutely no rights. She was treated like cattle or a piece of property, and she was no better than a slave. And frankly, a wife listening to this letter read, she would be shocked that she was even being addressed at all, and so would her husband. Now, that's the general condition, but the specific condition here in this context was more than likely this. there were wives in the Colossian church having found their new freedom in Jesus Christ. They found it very liberating, and they went a bit astray. So they came to the conclusion that she, the wife, is free to do whatever she likes, and no one may stop her, including him. And then Paul writes in one clear, succinct sentence, no, no, my fair ladies, listen, please. Yes, you are a citizen of two kingdoms, but the king from the forever kingdom has laid down this principle and it's grounded in himself. This is fitting in the Lord and the ordering of your lives, this side of heaven. Now, when you think about this and think about marriage, it makes this, the reality that a marriage exists for the well-being of society, if you would, in Cohasset. So one of the reasons why God created marriage was to order life, and when we do it right, society benefits tremendously from this, which is a far cry from the only concern as a marriage is how I'm feeling and how, if or not, I'm fulfilled, and if you think about that, that's where the real challenge lies, so what Paul is doing here is he takes, he moves us, if you would, from the greater to the lesser, so he starts with the greater, by God's grace, the Christian has been made in Christ. And they're part of the forever family of God in heaven. They're in Christ. And they get glimpses of that when they come into the public worship setting. Or they come into the church setting. But we know that we do not spend most of our time in this setting. But where do we spend most of our time? Well we spend most of our time with our own little families. And if you're honest that is what makes it so hard. So if we became a Christian and went immediately to heaven. That would be one thing. But we don't do that. We're in Christ, and at the same time, like it or not, we're in Cohasset. And and when we are called to grow in holiness, God doesn't tell us to go off into the woods by ourselves and have some kind of mystical experience so that we could grow in holiness. Where does it all happen? It happens in the normal routines of life, and it chiefly happens in the normal, everyday living, if you would, at home. So the poor wife is confronted by her God-given role of submission. And then she has to deal with her husband. And in some cases, she has to deal with children. And then there is, in some cases, she has to deal with work. And then whether it be at home or in the marketplace. And then she has to deal with her own personal challenges. And then she opens up the Bible and reads verse 18. You know, holy cow, right? Heads, Heads might have to roll. You know, who do you think you are to tell me that? And that's when it becomes hard. Because life can be hard. So wives, you see, unless Jesus Christ becomes the first foundation of why you do what you do, unless he is that, then you've built on the wrong foundation. And I can almost promise you that there'll be a constant discontentment, a a, a disgruntlement in your heart and mind and living if Christ is not first. So there's divinity. There's royalty. There's mystery. That's our third word, mystery. And the reason why I chose that word, because it comes from the parallel passage in Ephesians 5 on marriage. And Paul speaks there, and I'm going to read to you that he speaks, quoting from the Old Testament, for this reason, a man will leave father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, if you listen to that, and as you listen to that being read, you'd have to say at least two things. One... Marriage is a mystery. I mean, it is a mystery. You wake up in the middle of the night and you touch your spouse's face and you say, who are you? Right? And you hold their hand and you say, I'm going to have to think really hard about you. And I realize, Lord willing, I have a whole lot of time to get to know you better and better until death does us part. So in large measure, marriage is a mystery. And this passage, how it's supposed to be interpreted in some degree is a mystery too. So when you think about that, it came down to this. This is the the mystery of this passage in part. The mystery of Christ, he makes the first mood and he loves the church. And he gives himself up for her. And the mystery of the bride, she answers that love. She becomes one with Christ and she follows his headship. And that mystery, Paul says, is the very center of a Christian marriage. So unless you understand that, then you do not understand a Christian marriage. So so if we ask the question, what is a healthy biblical marriage or what is a healthy Christian marriage? Well, a healthy biblical marriage, Christian marriage is a reflection of Christ's union with his bride, the church. So you have the church, the wife, if you would, loves and submits and enjoys all the privileges of being united to Christ and a Christ, a husband who pours out himself for her well-being. However, We go dreadfully wrong when we say, okay, I get that, and now I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that for you, and you do that for me, and everything will be fine, and then completely forget about the person and work and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, what you've done is you've compartmentalized marriage as some other form of Christianity. So you have the Christianity one, you know, when you're really serious about Jesus, and then there's the Christianity two, how it functions in a marriage. No, there's just one healthy Christianity. And a healthy biblical marriage is to be in some measure a reflection of the gospel. Let me say that again. A healthy Christian marriage is to be in some measure a reflection of the gospel. So that other people can get a greater grasp of the, of the gospel. So that when our kids are at home, or our friends, or at the workplace, when they see these couples in common living, what they should see as a reflection of the gospel, a reflection of the wonder of Christ's self giving love. In other words, a healthy biblical marriage is by default. By default, it's an evangelistic medium for announcing the good news. And and if you think with me for a moment, all of a sudden that puts marriage at such a much higher plane than whether we are getting our needs met or whether I'm getting my sexual needs met or all my wishes and all my whims are being met or I'm getting my equal share, whatever that is. You see, all those things are an issue, but they are not the issue. And if they become the issue at that point, we're not behaving correctly. What we're essentially doing is behaving like greedy little children. Because at the very heart of the matter in the Christian marriage is the glory of God given in the gospel. Husbands, wives, the world, your children, the workplace, they need to see Jesus. So begin to get that right and I can guarantee you everything else will begin to take care of itself in patterns that are fitting for you. And that's the key, right? This is why I'm not saying, you know, husbands, buy flowers, do candy, do X, Y, and Z, and you'll just have a wonderful marriage. And is if you do X, Y, and Z, then whoa, it's just going to be terrific. The Bible is low on specifics because we have lots of liberty there. But the Bible is clear on principles because the one common denominator of every Christian marriage should be a reflection of the gospel, of the wonders of Christ's self-giving love. So if you think about that, that's why Paul said to Epaphras, he's a faithful minister of Christ. He, he preached only Christ to the Colossians. So as you think about that for a moment or two, what other kind of minister is there, right? What other kind of minister is there other than a faithful minister of Christ? And so the people say in rebuttal, yeah, you know, but that was then and this is now, and the world is a far different place. Well, well, certainly it is. But is a man, is a woman different in being? The infidelity and adultery and self absorption and discontentment that marks our world, does it, did it not mark theirs too? Of course it did. So do we need a specialist? Well maybe. Do we need a minister of Christ? Absolutely. Two quotes, one from St. Clair Ferguson, one from Ted Hendricks. We should not make the mistake thinking that marriage will provide the ultimate satisfaction for which we hunger. To assume this would be guilty of blasphemy. Only God satisfies the hungry human heart. Marriage is but one of the channels he uses to enable us to do, taste, and know how deeply satisfying his thirst-quenching grace can be. That's St. Clair Ferguson. Now 10 Hendricks, if a man can come into a marriage with his passion in life to, be, to completely satisfy his wife, and if the woman can come into a marriage where her purpose the satisfaction of her husband and both are sold out to satisfying Jesus Christ, then, then you have the ingredients for not an ideal marriage, but an ideal Christian marriage. How can a husband say Jesus is Lord if he does not love his wife? How can a wife say Jesus is Lord if she will not submit to her husband as fitting in the Lord? Divinity, royalty, mystery, finally authority, and this will be brief. So you're here. You're here and you're a wife and in some measure you're on board with everything that's been said but you still have a problem with the word submission. In fact, you have a problem with the whole idea of submission. Well, We have more to say, but let me close by saying this. The submission that Paul speaks of is not, is not unlimited submission, okay? Which means at least this. When what he says, little h, little e, when what he says disagrees with what he says, big H, big E, then we must obey God rather than men. And that is to be the controlling principle in every human relationship, including husbands and wives and parents and children. Is the word of Christ being clearly abandoned? Is the laws of men which are not in conflict with God being broken? If these things are taking place at both points, wives, you have the right and you have the obligation to say no, to say no to him. So I'm thinking of all the foolish, senseless abuse that Christian wives have had to endure because of a muddle-headed approach and, frankly, empty-headed sermons on this verse and Ephesians 5 that stinks with the stench of male chauvinism. Think, beloved, think, and may God grant us much help as we work out these things in our daily lives.